how many here have greenhouses or high tunnels or hoop houses or so quite a few of you? Um, I'm going to assume here you're growing in dirt because if you're not growing in dirt, this class is not going to, I shouldn't use that derogatory word, it's in soil. Uh, <laughs> then this class is not going to help you if you're, if you're growing hydroponic or, some, or, or using any of uh, those type of methods. So the other thing that I'm going to assume here is that we're talking about managing soil and green, greenhouses or, or modified climate environments. And so we're going to talk about the, the issues that you have to look, address um, when, you, when you move into growing in those environments. So I'm going to assume that if you're growing outside, you're already addressing soil fertility. If you're not addressing soil fertility, then we'd have, to, we'd have to have a discussion about that as well. So what I'm going to talk about is the issues that you're going to deal with in a, in a, in a modified climate growing environment uh, because, it's, because you're, you're growing in that environment rather than just outdoors. And so, um, well, let me just share this. Back in, back in uh, 2003, I currently have about 23,000 square feet of greenhouse and, and high tunnel. And I've been growing at that scale now for about 18 years. Um, back in 2003, I went to a, um, a greenhouse supply place. And it was primarily for hydroponic supplies, but they sold a, you know, a lot of other supplies that I, I needed to use, irrigation supplies and things like that. And I was talking to the owner of the business there. And uh, I told him I'd be growing in the soil because he, he was wanting to know if I needed hydroponic supplies. I said, oh, no, I'm, I grow in the soil. And he just laughed. And he said, oh, you'll come up out of that soil in a, in a couple of years. <laughs> so why did he say that? Well, what typically happens to growers in greenhouses in soil is their salt levels <laughs> climb and climb and climb. And why do you suppose that happens? Well, it could be irrigation. That, we had that issue in, in, at our place in Colorado. We had... Water, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Um, a lot of times it's because they're not, managing, they're not managing their soil properly. They don't know their soil. They're just putting soluble fertilizers on. They're growing like they're, like they're growing hydroponically, except they're growing in the soil. And they're over-applying salt fertilizers. It's not all being utilized. And, and so typically that's what happens to people is they wind up having to come up out of the soil because they, the salinity levels climb too high in there and, and that just causes problems for growth. So let's just look at what, what, what would be different about managing the soil in, in a high tunnel or a greenhouse. Temperature. Well, you're, that you're modifying the climate. So as a result, you're, you're going to have a longer season, right? That's your goal is to, to extend your season or possibly to, to um, you know, improve the environmental conditions, the temperatures, or, or, or some of those things. People typically, so if you're growing for a longer season, do you think you're going to use more fertility? Growing for a longer season, you might be growing outside. Uh, another thing that you typically do in a, in a situation like that is you, t you tend to plant more in there. It tends to be a higher density of planting. That, uh, that you're putting in there. So you're putting a heavier load on your soil than you would typically outdoors. Another big thing, and, and this is from experience, another big thing is you're now controlling the water input. And you wouldn't think that would be a big deal, but you see why, you see why it is. I see this all the time. So you're now controlling the water input into that, into that space. There's no rainfall falling on it. And depending on where some of you folks are, you might live in a dry climate and you always have to irrigate anyway. And another one is whenever you move into a, a high tunnel or a modified in environment, you're doing it because it gives you some kind of advantages over the environment. So you're getting warmer temperatures earlier. You're protecting it from, from wind or, or cold, cold winds. Uh, you, you're, in my case in Colorado, when I was growing in Colorado, we, not, we actually needed to reduce the solar level. The solar intensity. In the summertime, we were at 7,000 square feet, oh, 7,000 feet in elevation. And we would get in the summertime about 10,000 foot candles of light a day. Plants only need about three to 4,000. 
And so by going into the, into the greenhouse, we were helping the plants grow better because, and we could see the difference between what we grew outside and what we grew inside. The stuff outside was a lot shorter, a lot more compact because of that solar intensity. A lot more energy went to trying to keep the plant cool and, and deal with that you know, excessive solar intensity. So you're going, into a, you're going into a modified climate environment to try to modify some of those, those impacts. And at certain times of the year, that's beneficial. But what happens in other parts of the year? So you, in the early part of the year, you want warmer temperatures, a little bit more protected crop, uh, protection of the crop. What happens in the middle of the summertime? You now, have, you now have elevated environmental stresses. You have the opposite. You had advantages before, and now you have other issues. And this comes into play, particularly when you have, a, a say, a, a low-tech type of high tunnel or something where, where you, you don't have fans that are going to come on and, and exhaust the air and replace it. And so you can't separate the soil. And so what you're saying, well, this is, this is environmental influence, this is weather. But you can't separate that from the soil. There are two parts of a growing system, and they impact each other. Um, and so you're going to wind up having impacts on the soil as a result of that. So you're going to pull, typically you're going to pull harder on your soil in a high tunnel or in a, in a, in a where you're going to extend the season. So you're going to have to, there's a few things you need to know. One, you need to know, you need to know what the capacity of your soil is. Oh, one other thing I, I didn't add is a lot of times the crops we grow in high tunnels are a lot higher demanding crops. Or because you're succeeding crops, it's high demand. Like for example, uh, let's say you just grew um, salad mix in there, but you turned it every month. You would actually pull more, let's just pick potassium, you would actually pull more potassium than you would in a tomato crop in that same time frame. And tomatoes pull a lot of potassium. But it's because you're succeeding crops and you're putting so many, so many in back to back that you're, you're actually pulling a pretty a heavy load of, of nutrients out of that soil. And so you need to know what the, you need to know your soil. You need to know what the, the, the fertility holding capacity of that soil is. And if you don't know that, you need to find out what, you need to find out what it is. Uh, because soils have different fertility holding capacities. They call it exchange capacity. And you could have, and I, I try to illustrate it with buckets. Um, your soil might have a five gallon bucket of capacity, it might have a one gallon bucket of capacity. And if you really need to know what that is, because if you have a one gallon bucket of capacity and you're going to try to grow a tomato crop for four months or even five months in that, that high tunnel, um, you may have to fill that one, gallon, that one gallon bucket five times to be able to supply all the fertility that that crop's going to need to stay healthy and productive. Now, if you have the five gallon bucket, you might not have to, if you've, you've filled it up, you might not have to add anything else to keep that going and, and productive. So you've got to know what the capacity of your soil is, especially in an in a, a extended season environment where you're in, you're in a high tunnel or a greenhouse. And also because you're planting higher density, at least I do, and you know, maybe not everybody does that, but when I, when I plant, everything's up. So we're growing cucumbers up, we're growing tomatoes up, we're growing peppers up, we're growing eggplant up, everything goes up. We grow pole beans up. So it's nine feet, nine, ten feet of crop up in the air. So then we, so, so you need to know what the capacity is. And then what else do you think you would need to know besides the capacity of your soil to hold fertility? You're going to need to know what the requirements of the crop are. How long are you planning on growing this crop? How much fertility is it going to require to grow that crop? Let me just use tomatoes as an illustration. A lot of people don't really think about what kind of production yield they're actually producing. Um, just on the low end, typically in a high tunnel environment, you're producing about um, 60 tons of tomatoes on a per acre basis. Now, at, at 60 tons, you're pulling 250 to 300 pounds of nitrogen, about 450, 500 pounds of potassium, and uh, we could go down the list of all of those. So you need to know, I, I've grown and produced tomato crops where we pulled 100 tons, 120 tons of, of tomatoes on a per acre basis. And so you, you need to know 
what the requirements of the crop is. You need to have some idea of, okay, what, you know, how long are we going to grow this crop? Uh, and, you know, what are we expecting yield-wise? And so then you have to look at these pictures. Okay, what can my soil hold? What's this going to require? And then how are we going to make up the difference in order to keep things healthy to grow, grow for that length of time? Um, the same thing with a successional crop that may not pull as much. Like I said, if you're, if you're putting a, a short-term crop in there that might be only in the ground 30 days, but you're putting it at five, six, seven, eight times in that season, then you're going to put, you have, again, you have to know what am I taking out with it so that you can actually you know, make sure that you're, you're supplying that crop. I've seen over and over where stuff starts falling apart halfway through the season because the, the, the crop is running out of nutrition. Has anybody grown tomatoes in a high tunnel? Has anybody had problems with early blight in the high tunnel? This is just, I just want to use one illustration. There's, we could look at a whole bunch of different things, but typically what happens in an early blight outbreak is your, your crop is moving, has moved into a, has transitioned from a, what's called a framing stage or the vegetative stage where it's building the plant into the reproductive stage. And the mandate is to be fruitful and multiply. So these plants are going to do everything that they can to bear fruit. If that means pulling nutrients from the plant itself, that's what they're going to do. If they cannot get enough nutrition from the, from the ground, from the soil, they're going to pull it from the, the plant itself in order to try to complete that, that reproductive process. Now, uh, typically what happens is when that transition takes place, there's too much load on the plant. There's not enough potassium to maintain the plant and to produce the fruit. And so the plant begins pulling, the, the tomato plant begins pulling the potassium out of the leaves. It also cuts off exuding uh, photosynthase out onto the leaves, which actually feed the organism that's cause, is the causal organism for um, early blight, which is Altonaria, I um, can't remember the rest of the name. It's a leaf-dwelling fungal organism. The plant up to that point is actually feeding that organism. And that organism is actually beneficial to the plant. But as that, as that deterioration takes place, the plant has now stopped feeding it, and it's now sending signals of senescence or that the plant is actually dying. And so that's when, you, that's when the, the Altenaria begins attacking the plant. Its assumption is, is this is dying, it needs to be recycled. And so that's a, that may be a little bit different take than what you're used to people telling you about a, a disease problem like that. But it comes down to a potassium deficiency, largely, is the, what will lead to that happening. Um, so you need to know those two things. You need to know what you have available in your soil and, and what's going to be required for the, the crops that you're going to be growing in there. You also need to know what, what the condition of your water is. I didn't think this was that big of a deal until we bought the place we did near Colorado Springs in Colorado. Uh, you need to know what's coming with your water. And a lot of people don't think about it if they're growing outside and they're just growing a rainfall. Uh, and then you switch over because you're going to irrigate inside and you go to a well or something like that to irrigate it. And it could have, uh, you guys know, know well what happens. Um, the, the silers, they have uh, a lot of bicarbonate in their water, and it just locked up their calcium and, and locked up iron and caused all kinds of trouble. So, um, so you need to know what's in your water because contaminated water or water bringing things in with it that you don't want can wreak havoc on what you're trying to do with fertility and, and growing that crop. And so I always encourage people to, to have a water test done. If you're going to be controlling that water, even if it's a surface source, you'd be surprised what can come with rainwater. So, um, and depending on if it's runoff, what came, you know, where, where that water ran off from, what it brought with it from the, the area it ran off from. So I always encourage people, um, of course, to do soil tests to know. I actually... The, the crops that we produce in, in the greenhouses and high tunnels are high enough value that we actually test our soil six, every six months. 
because we want to know because it makes such a huge difference if we can if we can make sure that we have everything there that's needed to optimize that crop we get paid back tenfold what it cost us to to do that testing I also encourage people to have their water tested the better the more good information you have the, the better the decisions you can make about what you're doing and your objective is to to generate a crop and probably some of you uh, maybe it's some of you just for your for your own benefit. Some of you it's to sell. You want to you want to make uh, a profit on it. So you want to make sure that the resources you invest into it are going to give you a return and not a loss. Is that a mineral test on the water? It's a, it's called an irrigation water test. And what they'll do is they'll they'll test to see what minerals are in the water. They'll test for the electrical conductivity of the water, which is how much the salt level in it. They'll test for bicarbonates and carbonates. They'll test what they'll do what is called a SAR, which is a sodium absorption ratio. Um, and it basically tells you how how you know good this water is going to be or how, how many problems you're going to wind up having and what you need to address uh, in relation to that to make sure that you don't have those problems. And I was surprised when we moved back in back east. Uh, when you're out west a lot of the groundwater is heavy in minerals and a, and a lot of contaminants. Back east, I wouldn't have thought that that would be the case, but actually in Kentucky, I have a lot of growers in Kentucky that have very high bicarbonates in their water. Of course, we have these massive cave systems in there in, in Kentucky, and you know it's partly because of that carbonic acid and the bicarbonate that's generated as a result of rainwater leaching down through that limestone. And, and uh, so a lot of the groundwater there is really high in bicarbonate and bicarbonate by and large what it does is it it reacts with calcium and it turns it back into limestone and um, it also can react with iron and tie it up but a bigger problem is that it actually reacts with acidity and neutralizes your acidity now plant roots put out acidity they give they give off hydrogen in exchange for nutrient elements like calcium magnesium potassium and so they want to exchange it. The microbes in the soil do the same thing. And when that bicarbonate is there in a high level, it keeps neutralizing that acidity. And so the plants and the microbes just keep getting shortchanged on the deal and they, they can't get the nutrients that they need. So this is just one issue with water. You can have high mineral levels and you're already high in those, those minerals in your soil. And so you, you need to be mindful of that and how you may, how you may address that. The other thing about water is that I find that people don't put enough water on in the um, in the green the greenhouse or high tunnel environment, and and so you uh, what I see happen on soil tests as I get them from year to year is that you you'll see a t an accumulation of sulfur you'll see an accumulation of some other minerals in the soil because it's it's not being they're either not being, it's not being applied in the, the, the right amounts or it's, and it's accumulating. And a lot of times you have to apply, like say for sulfur, for example, if you have excessive cations like calcium, magnesium, potassium, or sodium, you need to put sulfur on in higher amounts than you actually need to try to leach out that excess that's causing imbalances in your soil. But if you don't move enough water through the soil, it's not going anywhere. And the goal is to leach it out. And so, I'll, you know, I, I, it's common that I see um, an accumulation there. It's, there's no movement. That, that excess is not going anywhere because there's not enough water being applied. Well, the way that I, the way that I water is through drip irrigation. Um, we, we have three emitter tubes on four-foot-wide beds, and we get good distribution of the water throughout the, the prof profile. Yeah, we have it. It's all filtered and, and it's on a on a timer, and we run you know a certain amount of water three times a week on it. You know, the more frequently you could do something in smaller quantities, generally the better. So applying fertility, if you could apply fertility weekly rather than once a you know season or a couple times a season, it always works out better to to be able to do it that way. But the logistics of doing that a lot of times is not. You know, people just don't have the time to 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 make that kind of investment. In Let me just repeat the question. He was at, the question that I just answered was, um, how, how do you irrigate in, the, um, in a high toner greenhouse? Now, I have a secondary system of sprinklers that I can flush 
you know, I can drench that whole area if need be to flush stuff down out of there if, 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 um, if something starts accumulating. I'm very precise on what I put on. And so, you know, and this is why people wind up getting salt issues because they're, they put way more on than is really needed because they really don't know what their capacity, soil capacity is and everything. So um, I'm very precise about it. But there, there are times when I need to, to flush it a little bit. And so I have these overhead sprinklers that will cover the entire area and I could put a lot more water on in a short period of time than, than the drip irrigation could. Sorry, could you ask the question again? Sorry. The question is, if you put more water on, would that cause a leaching effect? That's the objective. If you're trying to move excessive material out of, you know, nutrients out of your growing area, soil area, the root, the root zone, you want that to go down. You want enough water put on to take it out. Now, some people might ask the question, uh, well, isn't that going to leach out stuff I don't want leached out? If you're actually applying nutrients based on the capacity of that soil, you will not lose very much, if any, of the nutrients you don't want to get rid of. So it's, you know, you will lose stuff if you're putting more on than, than, than is needed there, and it's, it's in excess, and it'll go out. But that's the goal. And um, this is a little easier to do the further east you go, where you've got um, more water to work with. Out west, where you may not have as much water, and you have lower humidities to deal with, it's a lot more of a challenge to move water down. The, 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 the net movement tends to be up in evaporation. And so you have to take some more steps to, to make sure you get it to go down. And, and uh, I can tell you, if it keeps coming up, what do you think is going to happen? Where does the water go when it evaporates? goes into the air, right? If, it, if it's evaporating, it goes into the air. What do you think it left behind? Whatever minerals were dissolved in that water stayed behind. And what happens, this is another reason that this man told me I would, the salinity would build up and, and I'd have to come out of the soil is because, you know, gradually you start accumulating salts up in the top few inches of the soil. And I... He was almost right with me. He almost had me because I, I didn't realize that we had the issues with our water. This is where I learned that water quality was a, a big deal. I started seeing these white crystals on the surface of the soil. And um, it was from the bicarbonate. It was actually calcium that was precipitating, precipitating out there. But it was also because I was getting a net evaporative um, effect. I wasn't getting enough water on to, to keep moving that material down and out. And it takes a lot more water in the dry environment, in a high solar intensity environment like that, to, to move it down. So you have, to know, you have to know something about the environmental conditions that you're working with to, to know, you know how to manage y your water. It's not a matter of just putting enough water on for the crop to grow. And one of the things that happens when you get salt levels higher, or the EC, they call it electrical conductivity, higher up in that root zone, it's harder and harder and harder to, for the plant roots to take the water, to pull it against all that salt. It's, it's just really hard for the plant roots to pull it. Okay, the question is, how, much, how do you gauge how much water is enough? We typically, this is going to vary depending on, you know, the climate that you're working with, how much solar intensity you have. Uh, there's several different factors that you have to take into consideration. But we typically, in the summertime in Kentucky, we're typically up to two inches of water a week. Now, we don't have a net evaporative effect there. Out, out west, where you have a higher evaporation rate, uh, you may have to maybe even double that to make sure that water is moving down. Another thing that people will do sometimes too is rather than water, um, lighter waterings three times a week, they'll do a couple of the, the what the, the crop needs and then they'll do a third one where they put a heavy flush on, where they put several inches of, of water in to put push stuff down. So typically you know, it's an inch of water until, if you're, if you're growing, like, say you're growing determinate tomatoes. We grow indeterminate tomatoes, and, excuse me, in every, any given season, we produce about 20 to 25 foot of vine before the, before the plants are done. So, 
um, we've got a big plant. You know, it's typically it, when, once they get up to the wire, they're nine feet tall, and you know they're they're covered with leaves and fruit, and we're pruning up from the bottom as we harvest, and so. But at any given time, two thirds of that, two thirds of that nine feet or six feet is covered with plant. That's a lot of transpiration going on, and so you know we use every bit of two inches of water, even in, even in that environment. The other thing is, in a you know when you're out west, the humidity is a lot lower, and so it takes a lot more water for the plant to keep itself cool, to, to um, and hydrated. So that that that's the big thing. You don't want you don't want water. You, you want to be sure that you're putting adequate water on, and you have to be sure that you know what's coming with that water. Because like we experienced in, in Colorado, we were accumulating sodium. And um, let me just touch on what happens with the different, these different cations, because the four major cations affect the structure of your soil. They determine the structure of your soil. And I know I shared this in my earlier class, but a lot of people think that Organic matter plays a, a significant role in uh, structuring your soil, helping you have better structure, and it does, it does play a role in helping your soil to be better structured. But by far, chemistry in the soil affects the structure of that soil way more than organic matter does or humus. And it's these four major cations, calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium, that affect that structure. Calcium and magnesium flocculate soil. They do it in different ways and flocculate it. What I mean is they, they clump it together into aggregates. And calcium does it, and, and the, the, the clay plates that they're, the colloidal plates that they're atta attaching together are like plates, they're flat. And calcium attaches, they have two charges. The, 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 the clay plates are, have a negative charge, and the, the calcium has a two plus charges, magnesium has two plus charges, and potassium one and sodium one. And when cal because of the, the uh, dynamics of the atom and how much water jacket is, is attracted to it, uh, calcium is a, a bigger atom, so it has a smaller water jacket than magnesium. Um, so it attaches these plates like this, face to edge or edge to edge like this. Magnesium attaches them right on top of each other, like this. So could you see that there would be more porosity if you were attaching this way than attaching this way? So those are the two key elements that actually structure your soil, and it's the amounts of those two that determine how well your soil is structured. Now, potassium and sodium actually play a role in that, too. Both of them are, by and large, in a negative way. Potassium can actually seal off the edges of those plates and, and lock them down and, uh, and make your soil even tighter. And sodium, actually, because of its atomic dynamics, actually disperses it. It all falls apart. And if anybody's ever worked with soil that's high in sodium, you'll see when it gets wet, it gets kind of soupy looking and sticky. And everything just runs together, and the pore space is all just totally filled up. So in our case there in Colorado where you had the sodium bicarbonate coming in, the bicarbonate was taking the calcium, sodium was taking its place, collapsing our soil structure, and, uh, and you know, it was turning our soil to rock. I mean, it was, just, it was just turning it hard as a result of that. So that's why it's important that you know what's coming in, you know, what's in your water, because it's actually affecting, primarily it's going to affect the structure of your soil, but it's also going to affect nutrient availability. The question is, specifically in my case, what did I do when I saw that happen? Well, this was totally new to me. Now, I'd been doing, I'd been growing for quite a few years, and I'd been working with good, you know, good soil models for, for that time frame. But I'd never dealt with water quality issues before. So at first, I didn't know what was going on. I just wasn't sure what was going on. And so I had to, uh, and we would do our soil fertility, and the next time we would do a soil test, it wasn't any better. In fact, a lot of cases it was worse. Our calcium levels were going down, and and uh, so sodium was going up. I finally had to. I knew it wasn't a fertility. I knew something else was going on. The only other thing going into the system was the water. So I I called the university and asked them about, you know, the people there about, you know, if they knew anything about the water 
in this area. And uh, yeah, they said, oh yeah, you're in a sodic uh, groundwater area. It's, it's loaded with sodium bicarbonate. <laughs> and so that's okay, well, what do I do? But that's when I learned what happens when, with that type of water. Well, you have, to, you have to eliminate the, it's not the sodium, you have to eliminate the bicarbonate. So you have to, in our case, we were actually able to apply enough sulfur, elemental sulfur to the soil that we were able to neutralize the bicarbonate after it came out. Once it's neutralized, you don't get that substitution of sodium to, with calcium. And as long as you keep the sulfur, with the sulfur there, it's neutralizing the bicarbonate, but it's also making it so that that sodium can just leach through and not stick around. And so that's what we had to do to correct it. There are some people like the silers, for example, they're having to use a sulfur burner to produce sulfurous acid, inject it into the water, and then that neutralized the bicarbonate in the water. And they're still in the process of tweaking that and getting it all, getting it all worked out. This is another reason why you need to know the capacity of your soil. They, in this, their particular case, the capacity of their soil is pretty low. And when you have a low capacity soil, it can get messed up in a hurry because you just don't have a lot of wiggle room on it. And so knowing the capacity of your soil is really important because you can get out of whack in a, in a, in a hurry. Okay, the, the, the comment and the question was uh, he, he had trenched his soil and put some goat manure in the bottom and table scraps in it in there. And you said everything grew really well. But then he was told that because he did that, he would have to, you know, regenerate his soil but because it did, did what to it? So the, the, the reason was is because you've depleted some of the nutrients in the soil and you're going to have to put them back in. The reality here is, and, and I'm not sure where the person was coming from on all of that, I'll just give you a couple of perspectives. Um, the reality is if you're growing food and taking it out of the garden or the high tunnel, what are you taking with it? Nutrients. Nutrients. You know, there has to be a give back. There can't just be a continual taking. So that's a reality. And particularly if you're a market grower and it's all leaving the farm. It's another thing if you're consuming that food as a family and then at least putting back the scraps and, the, and all of that back into the system. But the reality is, is that fertility is leaving. And so you have, to, you have to be able to replenish that. As far as the organic matter part of it, um, the number one thing I see with people who use, who are organic growers, and I have a lot of organic growers I work with, is the overuse of organic matter. Now, why do things grow so well when you do that? Because most of the nutrients that are in that organic matter are in an organic form already, and that's the, it saves the plant's energy to be able to get those nutrients in that form. The dilemma that you wind up with, and what I see happen you know, probably 75, 80% of the time is some nutrients that are in those, those organic materials are not used to the same level as other nutrients are used. And in particular, I'm talking about phosphorus here. Um, and so you wind up accumulating and accumulating, and, and eventually you have excessive amounts of it. So I'm just sharing that with you to say that people say you can't go wrong with compost. You know, just keep piling her on. But um, I'm saying that you can cause yourself problems eventually doing that. Yeah, you see, because phosphate has a triple negative charge. When it hits somewhere, it's not going anywhere unless it washes away with the soil or blows away with the soil. Until you get so extremely excessive, it'll actually eventually start leaching out. But you're already in an extremely excessive situation. Um, potassium, which can be high in, in organic materials, can leach out and use a lot higher quantities of it. Calcium, you know, nitrogen, a lot of these things can leach out or are used in higher quantities. And uh, some people say, well, I've been doing it for years. I haven't seen any problem. And I assure them if they took a soil test, they would find out they already have the problem. What happens is, is if you keep putting the organic matter on, you keep putting it on, you keep buffering. It, you're doing, what you're doing is buffering that excess. But the day will come where you can't buffer it anymore. And so you're kind of, it's kind of um, hidden from you. You're kind of covering it, and you're not really seeing that it's happening. This happened in the, the Amish and the Mennonite communities to a really high degree. 
they use manure as their primary fertilizer source. And after years of putting it on and everything, one of the things that one of the things that'll be an indicator to you is when your your vegetative crops start tasting bitter. Like if your broccoli starts tasting bitter, or your your leafy greens and stuff have more of a bitter taste to them, um, that's a good indication that you have exceeded the the boundaries on on the, on particularly phosphate. But it can also be potassium. That's a result results from that. So, um, and people typically apply organic materials at rates that are way, way, way beyond any natural system, what any natural system would, would deposit at. So, and a lot of people don't even think about it because, you know, I only put a half inch on. I know people that put an inch, two inches on, but I only put a half inch on. Well, that was 50 tons to the acre of organic material. A typical natural system may put down 10, 15, 20. So you just, you're, you're at least two and a half times more. And I know people that put down, you know, 100, 150 tons every single year. And they're going to get themselves in trouble. And some of them already have. And they've moved on to another farm because they wrecked that one. And they, they've, they've moved on to another farm. And so... There's a, lot of, there's a lot of ideas out there about what works and what doesn't work. And a lot of people are applying these ideas with not really knowing what their, what their soil is made up of, what the capacity of that soil is, and what should be there and what shouldn't be there. And they just keep... I see, I see all the time people who... Uh, I can tell what their favorite fertilizer is. Because it always shows up... You know, all other samples will show up High, excessive in phosphate, and these are commercial growers too, conventional growers, high in potassium. You know, it, you'll have different areas of the country where all the, the limestone quarries are dolomite lime, and in our area in Kentucky, they're all high calcium lime. Well, most of the samples I see in Kentucky are all excessive in calcium. Most of the ones I see over in North Carolina and Virginia are excessive in magnesium, and it's because of the lime that they're using all the time because they were told they just need to neutralize their soil. With, by putting lime on, and most of the time they don't even they don't even know whether they're well. The idea is they're not looking at the nutritional aspect of it. You know, I'm putting these on as nutrients. I'm just putting this on to neutralize the pH. They're concerned about the pH, and so they're just putting it on to neutralize it. So, believe me, I see all kinds of issues that develop, and you can kind of tell what the what the character of the growing growing area is based on and what's being pushed and what's not being pushed depending on you know some of the things that people create problems for themselves and people people create an awful lot of problems for themselves they just could avoid and they'd be a lot better off sometimes not spending anything than they would be spending something because they're spending it on money uh, spending it on things that are actually creating a worse a bigger problem for them and sometimes the the, the deception of it is is that sometimes it makes things look better for a short period of time, for maybe one growing season. It gives you a little kick as a result of it. Now, let me, let me I'll, I'll use dolomite lime as an illustration. Dolomite lime is calcium and magnesium. It's usually about twice as much calcium as magnesium. And this is something that, that most agronomists don't even know or pay attention to. When it starts breaking down, about a third of the calcium, the first year in breakdown, or about a third of the calcium has to release out of there before any of the magnesium will start releasing. And so they put this dolomite lime on and they get the push from the calcium. This great you know, effect from putting the calcium on and then the magnesium hits the next year and the next year. And all of a sudden things go worse. So you gotta be really careful because you say, well this worked great, but then all of a sudden things went, went bad. And I've got several uh, fruit orchards over in North Carolina, and they all seem determined that they have to put dolomite lime on, whether they need it or not. And I keep telling them, you keep shooting yourself in the foot. Because what does magnesium do? Remember what I said? What does magnesium do? You, you, you have a net increase of magnesium and a net decrease of calcium over time. And these guys are growing apples, and you need lots of calcium. And peaches, you use even more calcium. Um, to make sure that that core develops right. 
and that the, that the fruit itself develops right and everything. And, and their soil gets harder. They have more and more problems with their fruit and everything. But they haven't learned a lot of them. Haven't, some of them have learned a lesson so far. But bottom line is you need to know what, what, your, soil, what your soil actually needs and what crops you're growing and what kind of removal rates you're doing and intelligently apply what's needed, not just follow the crowd and just put on whatever's, you know, and I, I have a lot of growers say, well, it's too far to bring in. It's all dolomite lime here. It's too far to bring high calcium lime. And I said, well, it's up to you, but it's going to cost you and your yield and the quality. And so some of these guys wound up having to go into the juice market instead of the fresh market. And they took a huge hit on their income because what you get paid for juice apples is not the same as what you get paid for fresh eating apples. I touched on the the idea that a modified climate at one point can be an advantage and at another point. So in the spring, the fall, when it's giving you warmer temperatures, it's protecting your crop, it's great. When you get into the summertime, it's hot, it's humid. You're saying, well what does this have to do with the what does this have to do with the soil, managing the soil? Well, when that when those stresses increase, that increases stress on your plant. And that requires, the plant then needs more help from the soil and the microbes in the soil. And it may not be able to deliver what's needed to keep that crop, you know, to deal with the stress that that plant's getting. Um, and another, excuse me, another thing that happens is you can, your soil temperatures can increase to a point where your microbes shut down. And they're not functioning very well anymore because the soil temperature is too high. I've told people to go in and take a soil probe and put it in your soil, you know, in the heat of the day like that, and you'd be surprised what the temperature is there. So we always put, by the time we get to that time of the year, we always put a mulch down on the, on the ground to, to shade it, to keep it from that, keep that temperature cooler. We actually use um, a, either a, a straw mulch or we, we use different things. Sometimes we'll use peat moss if we want to increase, you know, it depends on what we decide to use that any given year. Um, we've used different things. We've used a layer of compost where we just put it down on the surface and we didn't incorporate it in. Um, we've used rice hulls because rice hulls um, have silicon in them and we wanted to increase the silicon levels in your soil, in our soil. Um, so it kind of depends on what we're trying to achieve and what we have access to that may be, you know, more economical compared to one, one thing or another. I tread lightly when I, when I discuss this subject because I'm sure that you've heard a lot of different ideas about how you should take care of your soil and everything here. And I'm not here to tell you, uh, I'm here to tell you what I uh, have, have experienced and what's worked for me in my experience. And I just encourage people to, um, Try to learn some fundamental principles about how soil is supposed to work and what, what should be, correlating that with some biblical principles to make sure that those are you know, consistent with what you should be. And then you'll have to work your way through some of the information you're getting and some of the ideas that people are sharing and everything. I, I use what's called the Albrecht model. It was established near 80 years ago now. Uh, it was pushed out. It was, it was actually widely used and was tremendously successful, but it was pushed out by the chemical revolution. It, it, didn't, it wasn't compatible with selling, you know, soluble fertilizers. The objective of the model is to stabilize the system and allow the system to begin maintaining itself to the highest degree that it can. Um, it's a model that's, that's demonstrated itself for those 80 years worldwide. The thing is that a model, it's not the soil type that you have. It doesn't, that's irrelevant to the model. The model should be able to be applied anywhere. You'll hear a lot of times that, that this crop needs this and that crop needs that. I'll use blueberries for an example. I work with a lot of blueberry growers and I don't, we don't grow blueberries. These growers don't grow blueberries the way they're conventionally grown. We grow in a balanced soil, pH winds up being around six, between around 6.3, 6.4, in a balanced soil that's naturally where it lands all the time. Um, and it's based on, you know, complete fertility to those plants. And the plants produce better yields. They produce higher quality berries. 
um, as a result of that, and we don't have the time to go into all that all now, why that is, but um, you'll be told, you know, in a different crop like asparagus, well, that needs a, a pH of 7 or a higher pH. What, what you're being told is these different pHs, pH ranges mean that certain nutrients will be more available at that pH range. But what if your soil, in a balanced system, what if your soil already had enough of that? Why would you need to alter the pH if it already had enough of it? I had, a, I had a blueberry grower in western Kentucky who followed that regimen, already, and iron and manganese are the big things, why they want to lower the pH, because, uh, and there's another one issue with nitrogen, which is really not an issue once you understand it, but um, he lowered the pH of his soil, and he had plenty of iron, he had plenty of manganese, which is two of the big nutrients that, that blueberries need, and he created a toxic aluminum and manganese condition in the soil and it was being taken up into the plants and damaging the plants and, and his crop was not really marketable because it was like a hazardous material. Uh, so I just say ask questions about why am I doing this way. You know, for example, blueberries, that's where they, they found blueberries grown in the wild in, the, in pine barrens in New Jersey and Michigan and, and Maine, an acid sandstone formation. They tolerated that. And it was a very poor fertility, so the pH had to, it was naturally low anyway, but you got more iron and manganese in a situation like that. But it's not, it's not really the best way to grow, to grow um, blueberries. And so I don't pay attention to pH. I understand pH. I understand what, it, you know, what it's, it, the potential issues are related to the pH. But I have blueberry growers that are growing. I have one blueberry grower that's growing at a pH of 8, and you're not supposed to be able to do that. But, and there's reasons why he's able to do it, and, and, uh, and we have some issues with bicarbonate that we have to address because it's trace elements. We're having some issues with the trace elements being locked up by that. But, you know, he's growing blueberries. And so pH is just telling you what the amount of hydrogen in the soil is. And if it's low, if you have an acid pH, what it's telling you is your alkaline cations, or your alkaline-forming cations, calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, some are, one or some of those are missing. And so in, which ones are missing? You don't want to just put something back on, alkaline back on to neutralize the pH. What if, it, what if you're missing calcium and you're excessive in magnesium and you use dolomite like I was talking about before? You just made the situation, for a year it's going to get better. And the next year it's going to get even worse than it was before. And so... You know, I don't use pH as an indicator of what I should do. I use a sound model, fertility model, and how much of these different nutrients should be in that soil to get good structuring and, and good nutrient availability in the soil. I personally soil test every six months. And the reason for that is, you know, you're t you, I grow, my crops, it's a high-value crop. And it could make the difference, you know, the, the soil test cost me $65. And it can easily cost me hundreds, if not thousands of dollars if I don't, if I don't keep things, everything where it is. So it's a, it's a really cheap trade-off to, to be able to know, keep right on top of, you know, if you're growing a field crop that you don't have that big of a, a, a margin on and everything, once a year, and some, you know, once you get a track record on, on a crop, you maybe can jump to two or th every two or three years because you know what kind of nutrient, you know the c conditions in your soil, you know the nutrient removal rates you're, you're dealing with, and so you maybe can stretch it out. But good information leads to good decisions, and good decisions lead to good outcomes. If you're guessing, um, sometimes it, you hit it, and, and most of the time you don't. And so, uh, you know, the, the better the information you have to work with, uh, the better off you'll be. Another thing that I shared in the class earlier is. There's a myth out there that, that nature is advancing. It's evolving. A lot of people say it's evolving. But the truth is that nature is already functioning at the highest level that it can function and maintain stability. Okay, so let's, let's take your garden, for example. Um, it can function at a certain level and maintain stability and the health of those crops. And let's say you have a really wet year and it's overcast a lot and it's high humidity and everything, so you have less photosynthesis, so the energy levels are lower. 
some, or the opposite, it's really hot, sunny all the time, it's hot, dry, you're, you're putting a, a, an additional load of stress on that system. And a lot of times you exceed the, the capacity of that system to maintain stability. And that's usually where you run into issues with diseases and pests and, and, and problems with your crops is because you've exceeded that capacity. So the objective is in addressing soil fertility and managing your soil is to increase the capacity of that system, to increase its ability to, to be productive and fruitful and to maintain stability. All of agriculture is intervention. You will be intervening, it's just a matter of how you're intervening. Is it in a way that's, I, I use two different terms, is it in a way that imparts greater life to that system, greater fruitfulness, greater stability, or is it imposed? And this is what a lot of agriculture does. It imposes on that system to get the increase. And why? Because we have to have the increase. We have to on a continual basis. If we don't have that increase, we're going to perish. And so, so a lot of it's imposed on, and how do they do it? And this happens not only with conventional growers. It happens with organic growers and, and just about every other spectrum of, of school of thought out there. Is what typically happens is, uh, well, I'll just use the conventional part of it. What typically happens is, by the, 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 the types of fertilizer you use, you, you de degrade the colloidal clay in there that's holding nutrients. And when you degrade it, you orphan a bunch of those nutrients, and they use those nutrients to grow the crop. You also burn out colloidal humus. And when you burn out the, the colloidal humus, you also orphan nutrients, and that's how you get your crop. You get your production. But what happens in that situation is that you just degraded the capacity of that system. It's now lower. The capacity is now lower on that system. And this is what we're seeing happen in, in, in agriculture and food production throughout the world. It's sinking, 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 sinking. It's not going up. It's not, it's not advancing. There's no inherent ability. Nature is not holding anything back. It's not saying, I'm not going to give it to you because I don't like you. It's, it's always functioning at the highest level it can to preserve and sustain life. And so it's our, it, it's our responsibility to exercise the dominion that God gave us. You know, he gave us dominion over what we're made of, which is the dust of the earth. He gave us dominion over that. We're doing a pretty terrible job at, at uh, stewarding it. Um, so I think that as, as a people, we have a tremendous opportunity in this area to, to really, you know, faithfully address the, the, the soil and, and build it back into a stable, productive condition. I, I can tell you that I use the term taste and see that the Lord is good. When you actually, when you actually have a complete and balanced system, the food, the product that grows there will blow people away. And I'm not kidding when I say that. I have a, an acquaintance who, who sell, does the same thing that I do. He, he grows out in California. He sells at the San Francisco market. I don't know if he's still doing it. He might be retired now. And he started taking a video camera to the market with him because he would give samples. He grew heirloom tomatoes, and he grew sample. He put samples out of all the different heirloom tomatoes. And... Uh, People come and take the samples. And have you ever eaten something and your 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 saliva glands, glands cramp, and everything? And he would take video of these people. He just had it set up, getting these video of these people, and they take it and they just go, "Oh, that was wow, that was so good." He said, and and people start asking, "Well, what are you doing different than everybody else?" Because there were other people growing the same varieties, same heirlooms, and everything. In fact, he had one. He had. At one point in time, he had the mayor of San Francisco and the whole um, city council and a huge number of corporate CEOs and everything that were his clients, his customers. And they tried to throw him out of the market, by the way, because they, he was charging $4 a pound for his tomatoes and everybody else was charging one for the same varieties. And he was selling out and they were taking theirs home. And somehow or another, that was gouging. <laughs> and so... But he, you know, they had a meeting, and, and uh, the city council came in on it, and, you know, they tried to push the idea that he was gouging and everything like that. And he said, I'm giving people $4 worth of food, and you're giving them one, and they want the $4 worth of food. 
And, and, and fortunately for him, because there could have been some politics involved in it, the mayor and the city council were his customers. So <laughs> they said, no, that's not going to happen. Um, there was one, he, he told me some of these stories, and I just think I should share them, and I'm going to share a couple of my own experiences. Um, there's one of these corporate CEOs that came to him, and, and he's, he just flatly told him, he said, you know, you spoiled me. He said, he said, I sit in my office all day long wondering which one of your tomatoes I'm going to have for supper. <laughs> now, the, uh, the, standard, the, the standard has been lowered quite a ways to what people expect from food. And so when you give them something better, and that's what we're supposed to be doing, we're supposed to be giving people something better, they notice it. I had a... I had a a doctor who would travel two and a half hours one way, twice a week, to get produce. And one day I asked him, I said, I just felt bad for somebody to have to drive that far. And I said, you, you know, you're not able to find stuff that you like closer. I just feel bad you're driving. And, and uh, he said, believe me, we've tried. And he said, we cannot find anything like your produce. And he said, if I have to drive two and a half hours to one way twice a week to get it, that's what I'm going to do. And he did it personally. He didn't send somebody else to do it. And, and uh, then he said to me, he said, let me just tell you what it does to us. He said, when we eat your food, we feel better. We get along better with each other. We sleep better. When we get up in the morning, we're looking forward to the day. We're more optimistic. We're hopeful. If you don't think food is a way of ministering and witnessing to people, I'm telling you right now that it's, that it's a tremendous opportunity because it's a neutral venue. Everybody eats. You know, it doesn't have any stigma with it. And so the, the opportunity is tremendous. We've taken dozens of people off all kinds of different allergies just by giving them, you know, complete food that's, that's made right, that's grown well. Yeah, he was just coming and Hippocrates has said, let your food be your medicine and your medicine be your food. I have a pyramid, and I don't I, because I don't have this, this this slides here. I have a pyramid that actually shows you how that happens. You know, when it becomes when food does become medicine, and it's when it gets to the pressed down and overflowing level, when the plant is producing surpluses, producing more than it needs, it's getting more than it needs. It begins, and I won't go through the whole process, but when it gets to that level. You know, some of you may have heard a thing, it's a big thing right now, essential oils. You may have heard about essential oils. Well, they're like terpenes and bioflavonoids and phytoalexins, and we could call them different names depending on what crop it's coming from, what plant family it's coming from. Um, but when the, when the plant gets to the place where it has surplus energy, it builds, that, it builds that energy, those lipids, those oils, into these essential oils. And when a plant, when a food gets to that level where it's building high levels of the essential oils, now you have medicine. And when you consume those foods, it will do dramatic things to your health. The unfortunate reality is that there, there, there's not a whole lot of that kind of food out there. We need to make that food available not only to ourselves but to, to others. The question was, you know, how does soil rota you know, rotating crops affect soil testing? Um, what we typically do, you don't have to rotate, by, by the way, uh, as long as you maintain the fertility of the soil, you don't have to rotate. What happens is if you don't rotate and you don't maintain the fertility, you typically get an instability in your nutrient balance, and then that starts to cause stresses that, that cause problems with the crop. If you are going to rotate, what I typically do, because certain crops are going to pull more of some one thing than the other, is you can just take a... a a representative sample of the whole area. As long as you're moving it around, you'll keep it reasonably balanced. So you can just you don't have to take a sample of every different bed or whatever that you're you're growing in. When you rotate, as long as you're you're doing a consistent rotation, then you just take a representative sample. Um, and typically, what I do is I take the probes out of at least six different areas that we're growing something different in. So when I'm pulling a sample, I'll take you know, from the where we grew brassicas, where we grew tomatoes, where we grew potatoes, and so that I have kind of a composite of what what the condition is. And it, I haven't had any problem maintaining a, a good balance that way or overshooting it. 
Sure. And the comment was that, you know, after, uh, you know, after growing for three years, tomatoes for three years, it feels like it needs to rotate. That's a, that's a preference that the grower has, is to decide, has to make a decision about that, how they feel like it's, it's um, affecting. We actually, we actually don't grow the same thing year after year in the same place. We will go several years sometimes, and then we usually move it, you know, something else in. It has a different rooting profile, or, you know, we'll put a, a legume crop in after a heavy nitrogen pulling crop to get some replenishment of the nitrogen in the soil that way. Um, so yeah, it's just a matter of preference of what the grower wants to do, and, and so there's n either way is no, there's nothing wrong with either way. Yeah, raised beds is another thing that, you know, I always ask the question, why are you putting in raised beds? Now there's two reasons why you might want to put in raised beds. One is you have soil that's poorly drained, and so you want to raise it up some to get get a little bit of area, better area where it's, it's not wet. The other, the other reason you might put raised beds in is because you have poor fertility. And so you want to raise it up to concentrate your topsoil. Now, both of those issues can be corrected by proper soil fertility. So it's a matter of do you want to expend the energy to do that, or do you feel like you need to do that in the interim until you can get it straightened out, or if you're not going to address the soil fertility issues in that way. It's a structure issue and it's a fertility issue, and both of those can, can be straightened out. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.